This is Guns and Butter. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Joseph Calhoun on the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center and an update from Lynn Stewart on her trial. Joseph Calhoun has been a researcher and broadcast journalist since 1979. His presentation, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, was part of Phase 2 of the International Citizens' Inquiry into 9-11 in Toronto in May of 2004. Following the bombing of the World Trade Center on February 23, 1993, America's War on Terror began. Arab and Muslim terrorism became the new threat to feed the FBI, CIA, and Pentagon budget. In the Panama Deception, I did a 45-page research report, which Barbara Trent used in the Panama Deception. I'd like to read a quote here that was delivered at the United Nations in 1988 by then-acting president of Panama, Manuel Solis Palma. We find it utterly unacceptable that a foreign power should use all the resources of disinformation and manipulation of people's minds in order to penetrate those sectors and force them to act against the interests of our nation. Referring to U.S. President John Quincy Adams, President Solis Palma said, one of the most distinguished founders of the United States uttered a prophetic warning against the danger of its government going beyond its frontiers, seeking monsters to destroy. The United States government now resorts to the invention of monsters in pursuit of its designs of continental domination. He was talking about the demonization of General Noriega, specifically. And Noriega was very well demonized. In fact, the person who was given the job of demonizing Noriega in the press was a person by the name of Seymour Hirsch. Hirsch had two grand expose articles in 1986, in June 1986, that talked about Noriega being a drug trafficker, murderer, dictator, etc., etc. And he quoted his intelligence sources. Of course, Seymour Hirsch always has intelligence sources. But it slipped out in the New York Times in one paragraph that he quoted one of his intelligence sources. And that happened to be John Poindexter, a man who currently works for the White House now and is a convicted felon for lying to Congress. So that's the extent of our investigative journalism in the corporate press in America. And it's kind of interesting why he's been given this story about the prison torture. But I'll give you just a few facts about Noriega and then go on to the main topic. Fact one is that in 1983, Noriega convened the foreign ministers of Panama, Venezuela, Mexico, and Colombia on a Panamanian island called Contadora, and he formed the Contadora Group of Nations. Not many people know that. Noriega was a graduate of the School of Americas, but one of his first deeds that he did once land was ceded back to Panama, was he closed the School of Americas in Panama. That's why it's in the United States now. 
Not many people know that either. So thank you, General Noriega. Anyway, in 1991, the Soviet Union collapses. All our military budget, all our CIA money was going to defeat communism. But the boogeyman is gone. So, during the campaign in 1992 in the United States, there was a talk of a peace dividend. We were going to have billions of dollars to go toward education, infrastructure, roads, free education, free health care, because we no longer needed this large Pentagon and CIA budget. And Bill Clinton campaigned, in part, on the peace dividend. Well, Bill Clinton gets elected. And the threat to the CIA and military budgets is pretty obvious, especially to career diplomats and also the industrial complex that supports the military and intelligence budgets. And if there is no longer an outside threat to the country, then there is a need to invent one. Clinton gets inaugurated in January 1993, one month later, a little more than one month later, on February 26, 1993, there was a wake-up call. The World Trade Center was bombed. All of a sudden, we need a CIA. We need a huge military budget because there's a new boogeyman for the military-industrial complex. So I thought it was kind of strange. And I'm a, a cynic, uh, too much of a cynic, actually, because... I usually think nothing can be done about this, or I have for a long time. And so, all of a sudden, the peace dividend disappears. It's gone. We need to fight international terrorism. And to uh, give a perspective of when I first heard about terrorism or someone bombing something, it was around 1969 when I was a student at the University of Nebraska. And there was a bus of hippies going through Lincoln, and they were all arrested, and news went around the world that a group of hippie terrorists were in Lincoln, and they were planning to blow up the state capital of Nebraska. Well, it was big news for a few days. Two weeks later, after the story broke out, I was in the student union, and the leader of the terrorist hippie group was at a table drinking coffee. So I went to one of my friends and I said, well, what's going on? Why is, why is he here? And the guy told me, well, it was pretty obvious that the only person talking about bombing the state capitol was the FBI inf informant that was planted on the group. And charges were dropped. And the story died. You never heard of it. So that's the first time I ever heard about FBI entrapment. Before coming here, I almost forgot my passport. I fortunately had it and got on the plane and I managed to get here. But in uh, 1973 was the first time I registered for a U.S. passport. And I don't know if they still do it now, but they did it then. You had to raise your right hand and swear to protect the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And I thought it was a bit of a joke. But after I dug out my passport coming here, it's no longer a joke because the domestic enemies of the Constitution of the United States far eclipse 
they're invented terrorists or the foreign enemies. The masters and the mentors of terrorism that exist in Washington, D.C. and in the CIA are no match for their apprentices and protégés that they invent. And so I'm taking defending and protecting the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, very seriously now. And that's why I'm here at this conference. Anyway, FBI has been involved in entrapment on a number of things, drug cases, abscam. But there are field agents who actually do their job. When the World Trade Center was bombed in 1993, I think it was Senator Luger got on CNN, and he said they made a statement, uh, we don't have any proof, but we know it's Iran that did it. Well, fortunately, the entire van didn't blow up into unrecognizable pieces. An FBI agent who actually did his job found the axle, and there was a serial number on that axle. And when they traced the serial number, it was to a Ryder rental van agency in New Jersey. So the first arrested in the World Trade Center bombing was one of the bombers who was trying to get his deposit back for the van. And I thought, this story is very suspicious. If I had rented the van that blew up the World Trade Center, I wouldn't be in the country, let alone try to get my deposit back on it. So I kind of kept my ear to the ground on this story. Other arrests were made, and the group that they arrested centered around a certain blind Islamic cleric in New Jersey, in a New Jersey mosque. The blind Islamic cleric was named Sheikh Abdul Rahman. And no arrest was made on Sheikh Abdul Rahman for three months. Janet Reno made a statement saying there's not enough evidence to arrest him. Well, I happened to be on the Internet at the time, and... Uh, I had certain stories put in my file on this internet service, mostly involving the CIA and Iran-Contra. But a dispatch from AP came in from Egypt, and I thought, well, what's that doing there? And it was an AP dispatch which said, the blind cleric involved in the World Trade Center bombing in New York City is a paid CIA agent, according to President Hosni Mubarak in a government newspaper. And the story went on. In fact... Sheikh Abdul Rahman was wanted in Egypt for trying to assassinate Hosni Mubarak at the time. And so I thought, my God, this story is going to break wide open. It's going to break wide open. It was an A-Associated Press dispatch. It wasn't Pacifica News. It wasn't, you know, something else. It was Associated Press. It never made the light of day in any newspaper in the country. But within 24 hours after that broke, Sheikh Abdul Rahman was arrested for immigration violations. And a month later or so, he was actually indicted for sedition. So I kept my ear to the, to the ground real carefully on this story and was looking for anything I could get pertaining to this story about him being a paid CIA agent. Well, about six weeks later, we have an independent PBS station out in Denver. I live in Colorado now. And they had ITN News from Britain on. And they had a special report on the bombing of the World Trade Center. And in that report, it said that all of the bombers of the World Trade Center in 1993 had been on the CIA payroll. They had been on the CIA payroll in Afghanistan. All of them. Later, about a week or so later, ABC News had a special. It was their day one news magazine with Forrest Sawyer and John Hockenberry. 
And they said the same thing. And so I thought this story was going to break again. And there were lame excuses from the FBI and the CIA. The FBI said, uh, well, well, the CIA at the time, it was mostly focused on the CIA. The CIA said, well, gee, we didn't know these people we were funding in Afghanistan were going to come over here and blow up the World Trade Center. You know, that was the end of the story. No one asked uh, a follow-up. And so it was no more news. No scandal, no investigation, and a story. But the story did get better. Because during the trial of the defendants in 1995, it was revealed that the one person who probably wasn't a paid CIA agent, or at least who wasn't paid to go to Afghanistan, was an Egyptian by the name of Imad Salim. He was the FBI informant. And not only was it revealed that he infiltrated the group, but he also organized the group. He made the bomb that went off at the World Trade Center. And I think there was one report that I've seen that he actually drove the van in the World Trade Center, but I have to check up on that. But I want to read a few quotes from Newsday about that story in the New York Times. This is from Newsday, December 15, 1993. Defense attorneys William Kunstler and Ron Kuby maintained the entire plot had been contrived and led by the very FBI informant whose testimony was used to secure the convictions. Kunstler and Kuby contended in a letter to U.S. District Judge Michael Mukasey that Imad Salim, the chief informant in the case, was responsible for the World Trade Center bombing. Information Salim said in a taped conversation with FBI agent Ancliv, quote, we start already building the bomb, which is went off in the World Trade Center. It was built supervising supervision from the Bureau and the DA, and we all were all informed about it. And we know that the bomb was starting to be built. By who? By your confidential informant. What a wonderful, great case. That was Newsday, December 15, 1993. The tapes also revealed that the FBI knew in, in advance of the bomb plot and planned to thwart it by substituting a harmless powder for explosives. But the substitution was called off at the last moment. At one point, informant Salim, a 43-year-old former Egyptian army officer, recalls that the FBI had planned on building the bomb with a phony powder and grabbing the people who were involved in it. But Salim, who is heard lecturing his FBI handlers, said the powder scheme was called off and we didn't do that. Salim was also heard on the tapes criticizing the agents for ignoring his warnings that the World Trade Center was to be bombed. Guys, quote, guys, you know, you saw this bomb went off, and you both know that we could avoid that, he says. And that was from the New York Times, October 28, 1993. That was a very explosive uh, news item at the time. But no one gave it much attention because they were tried in 1995. And there was a convenient diversion for everybody. There was also someone else tried in 1995 by the name of O.J. Simpson. And that's where all your, quote, investigative journalists, that's all they were watching. Anyway, the defendants were convicted. They were given live terms. And Imad Salim, the FBI informant, was given a million dollars for his testimony. And the only reason I think he got a million dollars for his testimony because he insisted on himself being wired, because he wanted to record the conversations with 
the people he was provoking, the people he was infiltrating. Unbeknownst to the FBI, he was also recording them. And so it was kind of a revolt of the patsy. He didn't go to jail with the rest of them. So anyway, when 9-1-1 happened, the first thought on my mind was the World Trade Center bombing in 1993. And of course, I thought this was too well orchestrated to have happened by just a group of terrorists. And I remembered the two news programs about the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center. And I was in New York City 18 days after uh, 9-1-1. And I contacted ABC News Archives to see if they could search for this 1993 program they did on the CIA connection to the World Trade Center bombings. And the secretary found it, and she said, oh, here it is, July 12, 1993. Would you like a video copy or a uh, transcript? And I said, well, I'd, I'd like both. And she starts writing out the order, and she says, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. A copy of this program is no longer for sale and no longer available. Well, I tried to find out why. And I kept getting uh, another number to call. And finally, uh, after about three times, they referred me to their legal department, which was actually a voice recording. I was told on this voice recording that I would have to give them the serial number of the program I wanted, I requested. I would have to tell why I wanted it and what I was going to do with it. And if they couldn't help me, that it would take a court subpoena for me to get that program. And so I thought that was very interesting. But I have a copy of the program anyway, because I recorded it on the day of broadcast, 1993. And you're going to see that shortly. But I have to say that FBI agents do do their job. The story about 911, I'd say the true story about 911, almost broke when in June 2002, Colleen Rowley in Minnesota made public her memo to FBI Director Mueller about her concerns in the Musawi case because Colleen Raleigh knew everything about Zacharias Musawi, how he was going to flight school, how he wanted to be trained to know how to fly a plane but not land it, and she was making desperate reports to the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. And the FBI just basically told her to don't worry about it. It's not going to happen. And she was absolutely dumbfounded. And the story broke in June about the memo in time, June 3rd, 2002, the bombshell memo. And I want to quote from the memo. This is Colleen Rowley. Everyone's first question was why. Why would an FBI agent deliberately sabotage a case? I know I shouldn't be flippant about it, about this, but jokes were made that the key FBI headquarter personnel had to be spies or moles, like Robert Hansen, who were actually working for Osama bin Laden to have so undercut the Minneapolis effort. And so once again, I thought this story was going to break wide open. And actually, it did a little bit. It was the first time George Bush was asked what he knew about 911 before it happened. And he had to deny that he, he knew anything about it. And so I was waiting for the press to do their investigative job and break the story wide open. But what happened? There was a little girl lost in Utah by the name of Elizabeth Smart in June 2002, and all the investigative reporters went to Salt Lake City, Utah. I was in Washington, D.C. 
in the latter part of June to cover a march on the FBI and the Justice Department. And uh, I went past the White House and looked at the White House press corps tents that they have set up on the north lawn of the White House. They were completely vacant with flags waving. And so people like Colleen Rowley and FBI agents like Robert Wright, who can't talk anything about what he knows because he's being gagged, do do their jobs. You're listening to researcher and broadcast journalist Joseph Calhoun, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. This is Guns and Butter. I would like to get to the video. It starts out with a poem from a, a movie called 20 Years Ago Today by the BBC, and it's a uh, poem about the Vietnam War, about lies. I was run over by the truth one day. Ever since the accident, I've walked this way. So stick my legs in plaster. Tell me lies about Vietnam. Heard the alarm clock screaming with pain. Couldn't find myself, so I went back to sleep again. So fill my ears with silver. Stick my legs in plaster. Tell me lies about Vietnam. Every time I shut my eyes, all I see is flames. Made a marble phone book. Carved all the names. So coat my eyes with butter. Fill my ears with silver. Stick my legs in plaster. Tell me lies about Vietnam. I smell something burning. Hope it's just my brains. They're only dropping peppermints and daisy chains. So stuff my nose with garlic. Coat my eyes with butter. Fill my ears with silver. Stick my legs in plaster. Tell me lies about Vietnam. Where were you at the time of the crime? Down by the cenotaph, drinking slime. So chain my tongue with whiskey, stuff my nose with garlic, coat my eyes with butter, fill my ears with silver, stick my legs in plaster, tell me lies about Vietnam. You put your bombers in, you put your conscience out, you take the human being and you twist it all about. So scrub my skin with women, chain my tongue with whiskey, stuff my nose with garlic, fill my ears with silver, stick my legs in plaster, tell me lies about Vietnam. In North America, we have a population that is well-educated and very literate. How is it that they are so easily manipulated into believing such uh, obvious lies and they are able to go along with those lies to do harm to populations of the world in a manner that is so against their own moral principles. Could you please explain how this is possible? There's a both simple answer and a complex answer. The simple answer is we have a propaganda machine called television and that all the corporate heads of the TV and newspapers have the same ideological agenda as the people who own and operate us, or the people in politics, as the military-industrial complex. I think NBC is owned by General Electric. ABC, uh, uh, William Casey, who was head of the CIA, had an interest in ABC and uh, Disney now. And now I'm trying to remember who owns CBS, Viacom. 
And so all these, the heads of these various groups have the same ideological agenda. There's something interesting. I didn't talk about field reporters. When I was at the Noriega trial, I attended the beginning and then the end. And everybody, of course, was excited at the beginning. They were going to, to really show the CIA connection or whatever, the Iran-Contra connection to Noriega. The whole trial there was a, a show trial. You had a CIA lawyer. You had a CIA lawyer there. And the first time I sat down and when the defense attorney, Mr. Rubino, mentioned Israel or the CIA or the Iran-Contra, this short little CIA lawyer would get up, objection, 412-615, and what we discussed yesterday. And the judge would just say, sustained, usually. And I was going, well, jab someone. I say, what was that? Is he objecting in code? And, yeah. So we, can't, we couldn't even find out why. The, see, in the trial, and this is why I don't know why it's not happened in the Zachariah Musawi trial. It seemed like they goofed up. They were going to try Jose Fernandez, the CIA agent in Panama in Iran-Contra. But they threw out the case because they said they'd have to reveal secrets. Well, in the case of General Noriega, they tried him anyway but they instituted what was called the Classified Information Procedures Act. And his pro forma argument was actually censored, too. There are blank pages in it. The initial argument that the defense attorney gave for him, he couldn't give it because half the pages are blank. And so it was an entire show trial. Well, getting back to the point of why people are manipulated uh, into believing this, when I came back, there was one reporter, I'd always get these inside stories about what was going on. And when I came back to the trial... I had to go to Miami Herald to catch up, and I found out there were no stories on the trial. And so I was wondering, was there a break? Did the judge have another heart attack or what? So I went to the trial, and I asked the reporters, well, what? I didn't notice there was any information for two weeks. And uh, David Lyons, I think his name was, was the Miami Herald reporter there that reported on the trial. The trial was starting to go in favor of General Noriega, and it was so favorable that the editor-in-chief decided to censor the articles of its own newsman there. And then uh, all these newsmen, they, they didn't look as happy as they were at the beginning of the trial. And they were telling me all sorts of stuff that went on. And I said, well, why don't you guys write about this and print it? And they said, well, we do, but our editors won't print it, you know. And so I was going to do a story on the media when I got back for this little newspaper I do that is independent called the Monte Libre Monthly in Denver. And I called this guy from the Associated Press to get a little more information. I said, I'm doing a story on the media. And this guy went into a panic attack. He says, right now I want to tell everything that I told you is off the record. Do not quote me. I would work for a very conservative news agency, and I don't want to get into trouble. And I said, oh, okay. And, you know, I said, okay, but he kept on talking. I mean, he kept, he kept, it was, I mean, he was almost going into a nervous breakdown to find out that I was going to do a story on the media. So... There are people out there, even field reporters, that want to know the news. But if it's not a good story, and I think Noam Chomsky talks about this in Manufacturing Consent, it's called cognitive dissonance. You believe the official line because you have to believe the official line. Especially the way news business has gone in the United States with CNN, etc. If they want to maintain their six-digit incomes, you better tell the line. So that's primarily the way people believe this. But I've also found with what's coming out of Iraq with the prison abuse and everything else. I, I'm wondering why Bush even has 40% support. It should be way down, you know, to the, to the 33% uh, neo-Nazi Confederate Texas hardcore. And it's because a lot of people right now find the lie easier to deal with than the truth. 
Because if they believe the truth, then they obviously have to do something about it. So it's better to, you know, just go to work, come home, and not think about it, and watch TV. What do you think? Do you think there was an intention to create a deliberate enemy that they needed to maintain their, their military budget? Or was this just, a, just an oversight, a, a mistake of our bumbling CIA? The short answer is yes. It was created <laughs> for the military-industrial complex. I'll elaborate just a little bit. I think it was a speech by the late Henry Gonzalez. But he was talking about how leaders in countries south of the border of the United States, they don't deal with who's in office. They don't care who's in office because every four years, the presidents change. So they know who to deal with. They deal with the CIA. They deal with uh, the FBI because those are the agencies that live and the career agents stay in there, you know, through presidencies all the time. J. Edgar Hoover is a perfect example. He had files on all the presidents, and that's how he stayed in power. So these agencies want to make sure they stay in power. Now, if you don't have a threat, like I said, you need to invent one. And the strange thing, and I hope someone covers this story before it slips away. In fact, I think there was some good news. It was they had a full-page article about the execution of Nicholas Burke. What I talked about was the revolt of the Patsies, or the Patsy Imad Salim. I think he was supposed to go down with the ship, but he very smartly had himself wired and also recorded his FBI handlers. So that's why he got his million dollars and and left the country. It seems like the Patsies are finally finding out that they're Patsies. The best puppets you can have are the ones that don't know their strings are being pulled. In the case of the execution of Nicholas Burke, I think a lot of people were very suspicious. Timing is very good to all of a sudden forget about the torture and abuse, and in fact, forget about the other pictures that we're not seeing, that one congressman or senator said are 100 times worse than what we have already seen. And Donald Rumsfeld said it was up to him, he'd show all of them, but because he has to protect the rights of the defendants who are being court-martialed, we can't do that right now. And there's actually 26, I think, executions of Iraqis that they interrogated that we won't see. And so it was kind of convenient to show how these Arabs were much worse than us by the execution of Nicholas Burke. Well, I looked at that picture and I noticed that the executioners were not malnourished Iraqi insurgents. In fact, they looked about as big as me. And someone pointed out very quickly that Nicholas Burke was in an orange jumpsuit like they have in Guantanamo Bay. One of the pictures that recently came out in the Washington Post, they also wear those orange prison jumpsuits at Abu Ghraib prison. Someone also noticed the white chair he was sitting in. It's the same style, same color as the chair that Lindy English was sitting in when she was being hugged by the person she tortured Iraqis with. And that chair also appears in the same style, same color, appears in the hallway of Abu Ghraib prison. What is funny about that is this story, the suspicion about that execution did not come from some internet blog that I, I looked up. The first story that came out on, of all places, CNN. The first report was that, according to CNN staff experts, the voice in the recording could not be Azakawi because it was not a Jordanian accent. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I was going to try to find out who these CNN staff experts were and ask them more questions. 
But while I was trying to do that, within 24 hours, there was breaking news on CNN. Breaking news was that CIA analysts have analyzed the tape and have determined absolutely 100% it is the voice of terrorist al-Zakawi. Well, I got an email from someone in the audience, actually, fortunately, that actually had the transcript of one of the CIA staff experts. Her name is Octavia Nasser. She's a correspondent for CNN in Kuwait who monitors Arabic and television stations and broadcasts. And she was the one that said, first of all, it's not a Jordanian accent, so that rules Azakari out. And she was interviewed by Miles O'Brien on CNN. Then she said, I'm trying to go in the sequence, she said, even if it was Azakari, it's rumored that he was, there's several reports that he's, he was dead, that he got hit when they attacked the Kurdish so-called al-Qaeda cell in the Kurdish part of Iraq. And then she said, even if he's not dead, he had his right leg amputated, and there was no limp of this guy that was doing the beheading. And she said, in fact, it's kind of curious, their skin is as white as Berg's. And she said the weapons they had were an AK-47 and an Israeli counterpart to it. And her conclusion is, she said, it would be very interesting to find out who these people really are. Now that's CNN. The evidence suggests, no proof here, that Nicholas Berg was killed at Abu Ghraib prison. Joseph Calhoun's research about Panama and the CIA involvement in drug trafficking in the late 1980s was included in the Academy Award-winning documentary, The Panama Deception. He does documentary work with Free Speech TV in Boulder, Colorado, research for INN News of New York City, and writes for the Mont Libre Monthly of Denver, Colorado. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. I spoke with criminal defense attorney Lynn Stewart for an update on her ongoing trial in New York City. She was arrested and charged with providing material support to a terrorist organization in connection with her defense of blind Egyptian cleric Sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman, who was convicted in the New York City Landmarks Bombing Conspiracy case. Lynn Stewart is being tried with her interpreter in the case, Mohammed Yusri, and a paralegal, Ahmed Sattar. If convicted on all charges, she faces a 45-year prison sentence. Lynn Stewart, welcome. Welcome to you, too. I'm happy to be back with you. When did your trial start? Well, we picked a jury all during May, and then by the end of June, we finally had 12 jurors and six alternates, and we started the trial. Now, this trial is still going, right? It is still going, and we are still on the government case. We started the trial. It is, uh, I think all reviews do say that they know it's the most important trial probably of the new century and certainly of the Bush administration at this point, but it probably is also the most boring because it is endless reading of wiretapped conversations, of prison visits. Can you imagine anything more boring than listening to a two-day-long prison visit? And uh, so for all of that, it's not very exciting, but it is very important. Now, Lynn, when you say recordings of prison visits, you're saying that they recorded all of your visits with the blind shake? Well, they didn't record all of them. They started recording them in February of 2000. That was actually not my visit, but my co-counsel's visit, Abdeen Jabara. 
Then the May visit was the crucial one to them, and they ballyhooed it to the press as being, this is the meat of our case. You know, this is the one where supposedly the Sheikh gives me the message to release to the press that calls for the start of war, you know, declaring war and stop the ceasefire. But by the time they played the tapes and the reporters got a chance to actually listen to the tapes themselves, even the New York Times, and I say even because the New York Times has not been particularly good to me. You know, they sort of have a reserved position that says, well, she probably is a terrorist. But at any way, even the New York Times, as reported by Julia Preston, she did write two stories in which she seemed to say, where's the beef? Where's the jihad? That in the messages that were given to me, there was no call for a return to armed struggle. So that we greeted with a great deal of, of uh, joy. We always knew what was on the tapes, but it was nice to have it printed and circulated far and wide. Now, Lynn, what are you being charged with? My understanding is that you are charged with being a material aid to a terrorist organization, a conspiracy to aid a terrorist organization, and I believe there was also something about violating SAM's special administrative measures. There's a conspiracy to defraud. The the quintessential charge by this administration that really uh, makes one's eyes sort of pop out, uh, I'm also accused of lying to the government. But at any rate, those those are the charges, and the accumulated time that I would face if convicted of all of them is approximately 45 years. So we're we're not talking about, you know, the Martha Stewart slap on the wrist kind of thing here. If they get convictions, I have very little doubt that they will ask the judge to do his utmost. And at this point, we're pretty well assured that this judge is definitely playing on the government team. Lynn, are you on trial with your co-defendants, your paralegal and your interpreter, in your defense of Sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman? I am, and we should understand, you know, that we have asked for a severance. That means separate trials since way, way back when I was first arrested in 2002. That was the first set of motions. And actually, if they had severed my case and the interpreter's case, our trial would have been about two and a half weeks. Mr. Sitar is an activist. He is involved in the Egyptian political scene. He is the person who was wiretapped since 1994. He is the person who was in contact with people. And, of course, every one of the people that he was in contact with that was a player on the political scene in Egypt, and by that I mean the movement scene. I don't mean the established government, obviously. And so all of his conversations is basically what has taken up all of this amazing amount of time, playing them. They read them aloud because they're in Arabic. We have to hear from the translators. And, of course, the very taping itself is suspect because they seem to have shredded some of the tapes, and they first wouldn't even tell us which ones they were. Then when we finally they were forced to tell us, then they said, but we can play the little pieces we can understand. So we've had a big fight about the tapes, too. We've challenged everything in the case, obviously. And when I say we, of course, I'm still a lawyer with half of my brain. You know, I, it's not something you can shut off when you've been doing it for over 25 years. But uh, the trial is very, very, how can I say it? It's in its closing phases 
for the government. So, of course, they are pulling out every big gun they can. And when I say that, I mean, you know, they have a pretty wide latitude here because the government was charged after the judge dismissed the first indictment when they came back with the second indictment with the charges you just mentioned, Bonnie. The judge said they had to prove knowledge and intent. In other words, that I knew that I was helping a terrorist organization, that I intended to help them. So every single shred of paper, particularly newspapers, they are bringing in as evidence. The newspapers that were in my office stuck in files, you know, to keep me up to date on what the situation was in the Middle East. The newspapers of long ago covering the Sheikh's trial, his conviction, the kind of thing a lawyer or a supporter might just have for reminiscence sake, if nothing else. So they have put in every piece of newspaper. They don't come in for the truth. The judge instructs the jury to that. He also says, and remember, newspapers don't always get it right. And many times it doesn't even come in against me. That means it's not evidence that can be used against me. It comes in against my co-defendant. So we go back to another severance motion. Please separate me in this case. What he may have done, which he is charged with, of course, aiding and abetting a actual terrorism in foreign soil meant to murder and kidnap. We are not part of that. We are just accused of aiding this terrorist group by making the Sheikh available by means of this press release that I did. Lynn, could you remind the listeners what the charges against you are based on? You, as his attorney, after his conviction at some point, released a press release on his behalf to his followers in Egypt, and that communication was somehow misconstrued as trying to cancel the ceasefire with the government of Egypt. It's something like that. Could Could you remind us? Yes, exactly. The press release, I had a visit with him. This is one part of the charge, but it is the the really only significant charge against me is the making of this press release. Actually, the only live witness that is not employed by the government was called last week, and that is the reporter for Reuters that I spoke to in Egypt. And, you know, he confirmed that this was done over the phone, that he taped the whole thing, that it was completely over and above board. What happened was I visited the Sheikh in May of 2000. Following that visit, and for about two and a half, three weeks thereafter, I considered whether or not this should be done or shouldn't be done. I finally made the hard decision, ethically based, that although the regulations prohibited him from speaking out, that my obligation as a lawyer, ethically, was to advance his interest. And the only way that interest could be advanced was he would have to remain above the level of becoming a non-person. That's putting negatively. In other words, he had to maintain his image back where his supporters were. He had dictated a letter, first of all, to the people who were locked up in Egypt, the people that the lawyers in Egypt had contact with, saying basically, and this was the thrust of this press release, and it was that he personally was not going to support the ceasefire, but that he did not cancel it. He did not say it should end. All that he said is that people should be discussing it because it still appeared to him 
that 17,000 people were still locked up around this, that people who should have been released from jail weren't released, that torture was continuing, that people were still being arrested. And so what good has this done us? And he urged that it should be opened up to the organization, that everyone should have a voice, and also that the media should be put in on this so that they could begin questioning it. I spoke to the Reuters reporter probably maybe two weeks after the letter had been sent to the lawyer in Egypt, and I basically said the same thing. The headline, of course, came out, Sheikh Omar cancels the ceasefire. So a week later, I sent them a correction of that, and we had that fax introduced, and that fax basically said, I did not cancel the ceasefire. I said it should be questioned. I said, personally, it did not seem to me it was working, but that the decision is for the people in Egypt who are there, able to appreciate all the nuance, it's for them to decide this issue. So it created tremendous furor in the Middle East. It never hit any of the papers here, but it is their contention by releasing that, I opened up the question of violence to begin again. Of course, what they don't tell the jury is, There was no violence whatsoever. There has been no violence in Egypt since 1997. So for all their ranting and raving, it's once again, you know, the thing of we're saying this is terrorism on the march, and actually it has absolutely no substance to it. It's merely them waving this T word around and saying convict, convict. Have there been significant developments in the government's case against you? Well, I think that something that we really, we we weren't blindsided exactly, but, you know, we've known about it now for three or four months. But we, even during the jury selection, the judge was at pains to tell potential jurors, this case has nothing to do with bin Laden. But they nonetheless have been able, and this happened in, during the week of, of course, 911. They have absolutely, uh, they don't blush at anything. They introduced a videotape that had been played on Al Jazeera of a conference, we don't know when it was held, sometime after 1995, in which Ben Laden and uh, his first in command, Al Zahiri, who is an Egyptian, and also another fellow, an Egyptian, connected with the GIG, which is the group we are accused of aiding, all spoke calling for release Sheikh Omar, release him now, and, you know, and and more militant than that, you know, uh, Muslim men do your duty, and his son comes on and says we must go to the shedding of blood, but just to put that image in front of this New York Manhattan jury during the week of 911 when their television when everything was just full of tributes and pictures and what have you really was just about the cheapest lowest blow you can imagine and of course the judge this is his instruction but how much instruction can a jury absorb he told them it wasn't coming in against me It wasn't coming in against the translator, Mr. Yusri. It was only coming in against the activist, Mr. Sitar, because he had been on the phone with the fellow who was a member of the IG. He had a lot of conversations with him. So that was the link. This one person, 
that was at a conference and you had talked to the phone. Just think about the implications of that in our own society in which we're always going to conferences. We're always speaking on the phone to set up the conferences. We're always speaking about politics with people. At any rate, this brought in bin Laden, and I can tell you, I don't think a day has gone by since then that they haven't managed to find some way to say bin Laden in front of this jury. It is mind-boggling to me that the judge didn't keep it out as being more prejudicial than probative. It basically proves nothing. He also said bin Laden wasn't part of any conspiracy in this indictment and that they should completely disregard it as far as myself and Mr. Yusri are concerned. So everybody says, so then why is it coming in? Why is it coming in? Because they're the government, and they want it in. They need to wave this flag. This is the flag of terrorism, the big capital T, to make people just become so fearful that they look at us and say, we might as well lock them up because, you know, if the government says they're guilty, i got to go with the government. That's why the big test is coming, and the big test, Bonnie, is going to be my testimony. And that, we hope, will begin sometime in mid-October. Was this a videotape that they showed in the courtroom? What form was this? It was a videotape taken off Al Jazeera. And it was played first in Arabic, and then it was read aloud through translation. And it, as I said, it was, a, it was a free Sheikh Omar. It's like, you know, if, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, if, I guess if bin Laden calls for free Mumia, then they could also arrest Pam Africa and all the folks that support Mumia and say, see, they're all part of the same plot, and, and here's the proof, bin Laden saying free Mumia. They're not, under, not wanting to understand that anyone can say that. It's not restricted. You can't decide who's going to say that. And it certainly doesn't mean you join forces with them. But there is a limit to how much instruction a jury can understand. Are they really going to throw it out? I don't think so. It's an image that's so indelible uh, on people's brains at this point in the United States. The fear factor is so high. It really is a true cause for concern. Is Ramsey Clark going to testify in your case? He will testify on the defense case. We are fairly well assured that he will talk about how he has done exactly what I did. In other words, making press releases, talking about the sheikh uh, and what the sheikh's opinion is on certain things, and that, you know, he was never admonished, he was never banned from visiting, he was never in any way. And we, of course, do have a memo that was put out about one of these press releases in which they said that it was not prosecutable because it was a benign breaking of the SAMs, meaning they liked it. They liked it because it was, this one in particular anyway, was uh, favoring the ceasefire in Egypt. So uh, they were not about to go after him for that. But he did some other ones, and we'll talk about those with him. And we'll basically talk to him also about lawyering and what you do when you're a lawyer and how you represent someone whose really only chance is probably the winds of political change and the fact that he is a valuable asset to the U.S. government for potential exchange back to Egypt. This is very serious. Have you had a lot of supporters show up for the, for the trial? 
Well, we never can have too many. We On uh, the day of the opening statements, Bonnie, we did have sell out. The whole courtroom was packed, and you know I'm always adding parenthetically, this is the same courtroom that Ethel and Julius Rosenberg were tried and sentenced to death in. So it has certain resonances to us, and what was the C word, communism, in the 50s has now become the T word. But we are very determined that we are not going to let them smear us. We're not afraid to stand up and fight them now. We know a lot more about government and how it operates now than we did then, and we know that people are no longer so trusting, so believing of the government. My grandson said, oh, it's so boring, Grandma, that he uh, smuggles in his Game Boy, so uh, he comes with his mother. But I I just want to say to you that uh, we've had steady support. We've had consistent support. The jury looks all the time to our side of the courtroom to see who's there today. A lot of support from the black and Latino and the Muslim communities. And uh, we know that when I testify, we will certainly pack them out again that, you know, they will have to have a, uh, they had an adjunct room with video for the people who couldn't fit in the courtroom. When will the defense begin to put on its case, and how long do you think the defense side of the case will last? We think that the defense will probably start either early October or mid-October, somewhere in there. Uh, And I think it'll last probably about a month. We also have a few other witnesses we want to put on, people who substantiate the lawyering role, people who talk about what it is to be a lawyer, particularly of a client that you know is hated. So for all of that, that will probably take us one month to accomplish. Then we will have closing statements. So I think we'll probably be to the jury sometime in early November. I actually hope it's before Election Day, because I think it could be defining for people who go to vote uh, what happens in that courtroom. A victory would certainly make us feel that that we can beat this Bush regime and we can we can force them back to the hole they came out of. But a conviction, on the other hand, would have very serious ramifications for all attorneys. Isn't that right? Absolutely, and that's the reason that I think I fight so hard here. Of course, it would have serious consequences for me personally. It's uh, I have grandkids I like to play with, just like everybody else, and I would like to look forward, as I'm coming up on my 65th birthday here, to to being free in the world. But I also know that this fight is so important because it really is for the whole Constitution. It's not just about, you know, being able to do lawyering, which there definitely would be a pull on to be a change in the way we represent people if we think or know that the government can listen in at will to what we're saying in private conversations. But even more than that, it's really an attack on activist lawyering. By that, I mean the kind of lawyering that I do, that Lenny Weinglass does, that Bill Kunstler did, the kind of lawyering, Clarence Darrow, where you become your client's cause to some degree is part of the defending of that client, that political clients deserve a little more, perhaps. When I say that, I mean because they have a different message than just the poor kid that economically is forced into dealing drugs or, you know, the person whose whose mental stability is such that he may commit some violent crime or other. Those folks have a different kind of call upon their lawyer. But the political people who are motivated politically, who are persecuted and prosecuted by the government, 
uh, it could be the very end of that kind of lawyering because it's very clear they're going to come after me not just for what I did, but they're coming after me for who I am. And by that I mean the fact that I've been for 40 years an activist and I hope a thorn in their sides. Oh, Lynn Stewart, thank you so much for your brave stand, and we're all rooting for you. Good luck, and we're with you. And thank you, and it's always nice to shout out to everybody in Berkeley, Oakland, and the environs there, uh, a true liberated zone in this country. I've been speaking with criminal defense attorney Lynn Stewart. Visit the Justice for Lynn Stewart website at www.lynnstewart.org. That's L-Y-N-N-E-S-T-E-W-A-R-T dot O-R-G. Contact the Lynn Stewart Defense Committee at 351 Broadway, 3rd Floor, New York, New York, 10013. By email at info at lynnstewart.org or by calling 212-679-6081. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yaro Mako and me, Bonnie Faulkner. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm